Chapter Ten of Running the Blockade by Thomas E. Taylor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten: Experiences Ashore in Dixie's Land. Railway traveling in the Southern States. The conductor's car. Carrying dispatches. A weary and anxious wait. Under fire in a train. Excitement in Richmond. General Lee's headquarters staff. The Confederate government privations in richmond the bitterest rebels of the war a startling dinner bill provisioning general lee's army admiral porter's first attack on fort fisher the banshee number two runs through the federal fleet general and mrs randolph a magnificent cargo the dangers and discomforts at sea were not the only excitements which a blockade runner experienced as the blockade-running fleet of which I had charge extended, not only was an increase in my office staff in Nassau entailed, but a good deal of travelling by rail to and fro between Wilmington and Richmond, for the purpose of negotiations with the heads of departments there regarding the contracts we had with them, and upon various other matters. These trips involved an enormous amount of fatigue, worry, excitement, and even danger, as it was no easy matter, latterly, to get in and out of the beleaguered city safely. The railway journey itself, which often extended over a couple of days and nights, was an affair of great discomfort, the permanent way being anything but permanent, and the rolling stock too often rolling elsewhere than upon the rails. It was considered a joke in those days to assert that a journey from Wilmington to Richmond was almost as dangerous as an engagement with the enemy. The only place on the train where any approach to comfort was obtainable was in the conductor's car, the entree to which I generally contrived to secure, aided by a little judicious palm-greasing and the possession of a brandy-bottle or two. But the latter had its disadvantages, as the word was soon passed round that there was a Britisher on board the train with some real good brandy. And it was considered the duty of every one to whom I had stood a drink to introduce a friend who wanted one badly. Consequently, the brandy was generally used up on the outward trip, and there was little left for the return. But it was great pleasure to be able to quench the poor fellow's thirst, more especially the wounded, with whom the cars were often filled to overflowing. As a rule, my good friend Heiliger, Confederate agent at Nassau, used to entrust me with dispatches, the carriage of which provided me with a pass which much facilitated my journeys. But on one occasion, toward the end of the war, the possession of these dispatches made it a little awkward for me. I had arrived one afternoon at Petersburg, which is about fifteen miles from Richmond, and found a tremendous hubbub going on. Butler, having attacked the place with his corps, hoped to take it, and then turn the Confederate flank. Although it was but poorly defended, being held by some fifteen hundred recruits and boys, they kept their ground, entrenched about a mile outside the town. It was while this first attack was in progress that I arrived on the scene, and recognizing the gravity of the position, if the place were taken and dispatches found upon me, an Englishman, I went to the commissary-general and asked him to provide me with a horse to take me to Richmond. He said this was impossible, but that they had telegraphed for reinforcements, and that Hoke's division was expected by train in an hour or two, and I had better go to the depot and there wait my chance of getting the empty return train. 
It was a weary and anxious wait, as we could hear the attack going on, and feared the defence would every moment be overpowered. However, a short time before daylight we heard the train approaching, and soon afterwards it steamed in, crowded even on the roofs of carriages by hoax men, who were promptly detrained and hurried off at the double to the scene of action. A welcome reinforcement. I got in the train and we started for Richmond. We had only proceeded a few miles when, in the grey dawn, we saw a body of Butler's cavalry galloping as hard as they could to intercept us and tear up the line in front. Our engineer, however, equal to the occasion, put on full steam, and we just managed to get ahead of them. Seeing they were too late, they drew up alongside the track and potted at us with their carbines, without, however, wounding anyone. They then at once tore up the rails in our rear. Being under fire in a train was a curious experience, and uh, perhaps more exciting for me than the others, as I had my hand on the blessed dispatches, uncertain what to do. Fortunately, we arrived safely at Richmond, and I was very glad to be rid of my responsibilities. This was the last train that got in on the direct Wilmington line. After that, in order to get in and out, we had to make a long detour via Danville. I found Richmond in a great state of excitement. The northern attack had become more animated. The investment was more stringent. The booming of heavy guns was heard night and day, and hourly reports were brought from the front. It was upon this visit that I accompanied Lee's headquarter staff on the celebrated march along the south side of the James River, when he marched rapidly to Petersburg in order to confront the northerners' sudden change of front on that town. Upon a previous occasion I had made the acquaintance of the great general, and on this one I breakfasted with him. Shortly afterwards the march, which was very exciting, began. We were constantly in close touch with the enemy, at one time marching through the woods, which were being shelled by the northern gunboats in the James River, at another time skirmishing at close quarters with the Federal's flank. But as I had seen most of the seven days fighting around Richmond, I felt almost an old campaigner. It was a hard day, as, after being fifteen hours in the saddle without food, I was obliged to return to Richmond on important business that night, instead of bivouacking with the headquarter staff, as I was pressed to do. Wearied and almost exhausted, I found on my arrival in the city that all I could obtain at the hotel was some corn bread and cold bacon washed down with water. The following is an extract from a letter dated 15th January, 1865, written to my chiefs after this visit to Richmond. Altogether I think the Confederate government is going to the bad, and if they don't take care the Confederacy will go too. I never saw things look so gloomy, and I think spring will finish them unless they make a change for the better. Georgia is gone, and they say Sherman is going to seize Branchville. If he does, Charleston and Wilmington will be done, and if Wilmington goes, Lee has to evacuate Richmond and retire into Tennessee. He told me the other day that if they did not keep Wilmington, he could not save Richmond. They nearly had Fort Fisher. They were within sixty yards of it, and had they pushed on as they ought to have done, could have taken it. It was a terrific bombardment. They estimate that about forty thousand shells were sent into it. Colonel Lamb behaved like a brick splendidly. I got the last of the Whitworths in, and they are now at the fort. 
They are very hard up for food in the field, but the Banshee has this time six hundred barrels of pork and fifteen hundred boxes of meat, enough to feed Lee's army for a month. The above extract is interesting, as it showed that my diagnosis of the position of affairs written in January 1865 proved correct as to what actually happened two or three months later. Sherman did capture Branchville, and in consequence Charleston and Wilmington. When the latter port fell, Lee was forced to evacuate Richmond and retire toward Tennessee and eventually capitulate. Had Charleston and Wilmington been retained and blockade running encouraged, instead of having obstacles thrown in the way, I am convinced that the condition of affairs would have been altered very materially, and perhaps would have led to the South obtaining what it had shed so much blood to gain, viz. its independence. No doubt at that critical time the North was making its last supreme effort, and had it failed, negotiations would probably have been opened up with a view to peace. The privations of the regular residents in Richmond in those days was very great, as food of all kinds was very expensive, but all bore their troubles without a murmur, and I think there was more enthusiasm displayed there than in any other city in the South, probably because the people, with the enemy at their gates, were always in close touch with them, and also because there was such a large female element in society there for the ladies of the South were proverbially the staunchest and bitterest rebels of the war. Of course, money still purchased most things, and we blockade-runners, who were well supplied with coin, managed to live in comparative comfort, and at times even fared sumptuously. I remember a great dinner I gave to a few heads of departments. It was a banquet no one need have been ashamed of. But, oh, the bill! a little over five thousand dollars, confederate, for a dinner to fourteen. When one has to pay one hundred and fifty dollars a bottle for champagne, one hundred and twenty dollars for sherry or madeira, and as much in proportion for the viands, the account soon runs up. However, it was a great success, and well worth the cost. That morning I had met by appointment the commissary-general, who divulged to me under promise of secrecy that Lee's army was in terrible straits, and had in fact rations only for about thirty days. He asked me if I could help him. I said I would do my best, and after some negotiations he undertook to pay me a profit of three hundred and fifty per cent upon any provisions and meat I could bring in within the next three weeks. I had then, discharging in Wilmington, the Banshee Number no. 2, which had just been sent out to replace the first Banshee, and in which I had run the blockade inwards. I telegraphed instructions to have her made ready for sea with all speed and await my arrival. After a somewhat exciting and lengthy journey of three days and nights owing to having to go round by Danville, I reached Wilmington, successfully ran the blockade out, purchased my cargo of provisions, etc., at Nassau for about six thousand pounds, for which eventually I was paid over twenty-seven thousand pounds, and after a most exciting run-in, landed the same in Wilmington within eighteen days after leaving Richmond. In the interim, between our leaving Wilmington and our return, Porter's fleet had made an unsuccessful attack upon Fort Fisher, and he was just then at the time of our appearance upon the scene concluding his attack and re-embarking his beaten troops. When morning broke and we were near the fort, we counted sixty-four vessels that we had passed through. 
after being heavily fired into at daybreak by several gunboats, the fort being unable to protect us as usual owing to nearly all its guns having been put out of action in the attack of the two previous days. It was an exciting moment as we crossed the bar in safety, cheered by the garrison some two thousand strong, who knew we had provisions on board for the relief of their comrades in Virginia. I wrote under date of 15th January 1865 to my chiefs at home with reference to this trip. I went over in the Banshee and had an exciting time of it. We arrived off the bar when Porter's vast fleet was there, and I think the Confederate Trading Company ought to be proud of their two vessels, Banshee and Wild Rover, both running through that immense fleet and getting safely in. The Banshee was out in front of them all for half an hour after daylight, as we were rather late and could not get up to the bar before. They said at Fort Fisher that it was a beautiful sight to see the little Banshee manoeuvring in front of the whole fleet. They sent some vessels in to pepper us, but every shot missed, and we got in safely. Porter's fleet left that evening, and I think they have given up the attack for a time. I shall never forget that trip. We sailed from Nassau at dusk on the evening before Christmas Day, but were only just outside the harbour when our steam pipe split and we had to return. As it was hopeless on account of the moon to make the attempt unless we could get away next day, I was in despair and thought it was all up with my 350% profit. After long trying in vain to find someone to undertake the necessary repairs, owing to its being Christmas Day, I found at last a Yankee who said, "'Well, sir, it's only a question of price.' I said, "'Name yours,' and he replied, "'Well, I guess four hundred dollars for three clamps would be fair.' I said, "'All right, if finished by six o'clock.' He set to work, and we made all arrangements to start. Shortly after six the work was finished, but the black pilot then declared he couldn't take her out until the tide turned, there being no room to turn her in the harbour. As it was a question of hours, I said, back her out. He grinned and said, perhaps do plenty damage. Never mind, said I, try it. And we did, with the result that we came plump into the man-of-war lying at the entrance of the harbour, officers all on deck ready to go down to the Christmas dinner, and ground along her side, smashing two of her boats in, but doing ourselves little damage. Goodbye, I shouted, a Merry Christmas, and send the bill in for the boats. Away we went clear, and fortunate it was we did so, as we only arrived off Wilmington just in time to run through Porter's fleet before daybreak. The trip out was equally exciting, as I had as passengers General Randolph, ex-Secretary of State for War, who was going to Europe invalided, and his wife. I did not want to take them, as the Banshee had practically no accommodation whatever, particularly for ladies. However, she had such a good character for safety that they pleaded hard to be taken, and I at last consented, though I did not like at all the responsibility of having a lady on board. I was determined, however, to make Mrs. Randolph as safe as possible so told the stevedore to keep a square space between the cotton bales on deck into which she could retire in case the firing became hot. And hot it did become. Running down with a strong ebb tide through the Smith's Inlet Channel, we suddenly found a gunboat in the middle of the channel on the bar. It was too late to stop, so we put her at it, almost grazing the gunboat's sides and receiving her broadside point-blank. Mrs. Randolph had retired to her place of safety, 
but she told me afterwards that, alarmed as she was, she could not help laughing when, after she had been there only an instant, my coloured servant, who had evidently fixed upon the place as appearing to be the most safe, jumped right on the top of her, his teeth chattering through fear. How we laughed the next morning, and how poor Sam got chaffed, but he became quite a cool hand, and when we were running in, in daylight, in the will-o'-the-wisp, as I have already related, and the shot were coming thick, Sam appeared upon the bridge with his usual, "'Coffee, sir!' After we had got rid of our friend on the bar, we were heavily peppered by her consorts outside, from whom we received no damage, but we fell in with very bad weather, and the ship was under water most of the time. Right glad I was to land my passengers, who were half dead through seasickness, exposure, and fatigue. Although it was a hard trip, it paid well, as we had on board coming out a most magnificent cargo, a great deal of it Sea Island cotton, the profit upon which and the provisions I had taken in amounted to over eighty-five thousand pounds. Not bad work for about twenty days. End of chapter 10